because it is about one of the most important sermons that was ever preached. As far as we know, it was the first sermon preached by Apostle Paul as a missionary. Now, he had undoubtedly done a lot of teaching at uh, the Antioch Church. But when he and Barnabas went out into the mission field, he became a preacher, uh, a proclaimer, if you will, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 13, we have the first sermon that Paul preached that was recorded by Luke, at least. And Paul understood the priority of preaching. In Romans chapter 10, he said this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Clearly, not only did he recognize the importance of preaching, but he wanted his protégés to also understand this priority. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he said, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, and as well as verse 15, he told Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. And you know, the need in our world today has not changed. Because of that, I would think that preaching should still have the same priority in the church as it did in Paul's day. Obviously, as a preacher, I might think that, but I believe it's still important. Unfortunately, you'd probably be surprised to know how biblical preaching has fallen kind of out of favor in many churches. It's been replaced with all kinds of, well, I can't go there. Let let me go where John MacArthur has written about this preaching in the church from The Mandate of Biblical Inerrancy, Expositional Preaching by John. He said, sadly, many in the church today do not share Paul's commitment to preaching the word. There is a dearth of biblically sound preaching. From today's pulpits come the uncertain sounds of relational chit-chat, social commentary, storytelling, shallow homilies, and political rhetoric. Many view preaching as an anachronism in today's era of user-friendly entertainment-oriented churches. While many downplay the significance of biblical preaching, it is nonetheless vital to a spiritually strong church. Strong biblical preaching also upholds the authority of God's word. How strange it is that many who affirm the inerrancy of the Bible fail to preach it expositionally. With that admonition, I'd like to lead us into the study of Paul's first sermon on the mission field. I want to start by looking at the setting of this particular sermon. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Let me remind you that beginning back in verse 9, Luke mentions that Saul is also known as Paul. And up through Acts 13, verse 7, Luke referred to this small missionary band as Barnabas and Saul. But beginning here... Luke refers to Saul as Paul, and he then names him first on the missionary team. Paul has become the leader of this missionary band. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, 
and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So we first want to talk about the place of this sermon. And uh, if I can find it here, I want to show you on the map where we're talking about. I don't know if you can read this or not. Here is Cyprus, down here. Up here is Pamphylia, Perga, and Antioch. Now that's the second Antioch, by the way. The other one's over here in Syria. That's where they started. But today they've gone to, they're, they're now in Pamphylia. They'll be going to Perga, and eventually in, actually they're starting in Paphos down here in Cyprus. Just so you get a feel for that, that particular area. Now in Perga, up there on the map, there's a temple to Diana that stood on a hillside outside the city. So that gives you an idea of what they were walking into. So that was the place where they went. But there was also a little bit of a problem there. In the second half of verse 13, we find that John, John Mark, had left them and returned to Jerusalem. Understand that John was Barnabas' cousin, and he had been with him and Paul since they had left the original Antioch in, in Syria. But for some reason that we're not given, John Mark returned to Jerusalem after they arrived in Perga. The reason for the departure has been the cause of a lot of speculation over the years, but frankly, we just don't know why he left. It could have been homesickness. It could have been discontent over Paul taking leadership over his cousin, Barnabas. Or maybe he just wasn't up to the difficulties of travel involved in where they were going and what they were doing. I tend to think more it had to do with the calling required to endure the hardships of the ministry that they were doing, especially those they, they surely encountered on this particular trip. It was on the frontier. There were mountains to cross and oceans to, to negotiate. Nothing is said early in the chapter about John Mark being called to this mission work. Saul and Barnabas were specifically called out by name and set aside for this mission. And they had hands laid on them and prayer was made for them for this particular mission. And without a true sense of calling to a ministry, it's difficult at best, I think, to persevere in any given ministry. And I think perhaps that may have been what led to John's problem. It's hard to say. But we see that John's departure didn't sit well well with with Paul. Later in chapter 15, verses 37 and 39, it tells us this. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. This is another trip. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now this disagreement was characterized in Scripture as a sharp disagreement. And it was serious enough that Barnabas ultimately left Paul at that point, and Paul chose Silas to move on with him in his mission work. And the good news is, in time, those relationships, of course, were healed. And uh, if we have time later in our study of Acts, we'll go through some of those details. Secondly, we see a strategy for the sermon that Paul is about to deliver. Verses 14 and 15. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. 
Now, either Paul didn't preach in Perga or Luke didn't record it because the sermon that we're about to study uh, was delivered in Antioch in Pisidia, which was the next stop on their itinerary. Again, the path that they followed, the, the church that sent Paul and Barnabas was this Antioch over here in Syria. The one that we're talking about today is up here in Asia Minor. Now, Paul and Barnabas had to walk some very rugged, uh, a very rugged route overland through the Taurus Mountains to get from Perga up to Antioch. And some scholars believe that it was here that Paul experienced many of the hardships that he recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and in cold and exposure. That's how he described the trials he'd experienced in his mission trip. And considering the rugged and dangerous region that they were traveling through here, uh, it, many of those problems could have been encountered just on this trip alone. Secondly, I want to look at the procedure of this, the whole thing, the, the, the way they followed themselves here. And on, it says, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, I think we mentioned last week that it became Paul's normal strategy when he went to a new location to find the local Jewish synagogue, if there was one. If not, find out where the Jews that were there locally, where they gathered, to preach and teach and begin ministry in that new area. And verse 14b tells us that's exactly what he did when he got to Antioch. He located a community of Jews who knew the Bible, and there were some God-fearing Gentiles with them, just like Peter had found with Cornelius at Caesarea. And as a rabbi trained by the, uh, the famous Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem, Paul was instantly allowed access and audience to these folks. <coughs> now, synagogue services in those days were kind of standardized or rather liturgical. They began with the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. You'll, you're familiar with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And that's followed by a series of prayers, then a reading from the Old Testament, followed by interpretive comments or exhortations from a rabbi. When the time came for the comments at the Antioch synagogue, the rulers invited Paul and Barnabas to speak. And that gave them an open door for Paul to deliver a message concerning the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, I want to look at the substance of the sermon that Paul delivers. Now recently, uh, we talked about the sovereignty of God. And God's sovereignty is actually the main theme of Paul's sermon. Paul's audience is Jewish. They know the Bible. And he's about to trace God's sovereign actions throughout the history of the nation of Israel. 
his historical narrative, if you will, will culminate in God's sovereign provision of the Savior, Messiah. A sermon about God's providence. His intimate involvement in both the good times and in the tough times in life. Paul's about to give God credit for everything that's happened in Israel's history. God chose, God brought, he put up with, he destroyed, he distributed, he gave, he raised up, and he fulfilled. Paul clearly identifies God's hand behind all of their experiences. And his conclusion, naturally, is that just as God has been involved in their past, so he is involved in providing Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. Now he talks about their sovereignty first in the slavery of the Jewish people. Verses 16 and 17. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. First he addresses the men of Israel, of course the Jews, and you who fear God, the Gentiles who are among them, that are listening in. (laughs) And in verse 17, he starts Israel's history with recollection of their enslavement in Egypt. Now, that had been a particularly difficult time in Israel's history. And yet Paul says God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. The New King James says that God exalted them during their 400 years by causing them to multiply and become a, a mighty nation. God put Israel there for a reason, to grow them into a nation that would become the people of God. God is sovereign even in the difficult times. Secondly, he speaks of God's sovereignty in the sojourn, the travels of his people. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. (laughs) Now I have to tell you, As a dad, this verse kind of tickles me. Don't you love your kids? I mean, you'd die for them, right? And yet sometimes the best you can do is just put up with them. (laughs) And, And that's what God was doing with the nation of Israel sometimes while they were traveling in the wilderness. Putting up with them. Every time he turned around, they were wandering off and getting into trouble. And then they'd come back, oh, Father, help us, save us. We'll do exactly what you tell us to, we promise. At least for the next five or ten minutes. God was sovereign with his people. Even as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Until an unbelieving generation died off. Israel's behavior in the wilderness was clearly carnal. They grumbled. They disputed with God, and that generation was kept from entering the promised land. But God still put up with them until the second generation was ready to go into the promised land. Like us, he's hung in there with us. Even though we didn't deserve it, 
We didn't deserve patience, but he never failed them. And he has never failed us, and he will not. Thirdly, we see God's sovereignty in the settlement of his people. Verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their lands to them by allotment. Now, we recall that Joshua was Moses' successor in leading the nation of Israel. And God sovereignly provided them with the power to overcome the seven nations in the land of Canaan. But note here that Paul does give credit to God, saying it was God who conquered seven nations and drove out the inhabitants. Not the people of Israel. It was God who did that. Next, we see God's sovereignty in a series of judges for the nation of Israel. Verse 20. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So up to this point, Paul has covered about 450 years of God's divine sovereign intervention in leading the nation of Israel. 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and about 10 settling Canaan. After all that came another 450 years when Israel was ruled by judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, that period was clearly summarized in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. It said, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. <laughs> Sounds like a lawless time to me, but there were seven cycles of sin and deliverance for the Israeli people. The people cried out to God, He would save them by giving them a deliverer or a judge. And then establish them again. And then they would mess up again and cry out to God. And he would send them another deliverer to save them, to set them back into place. And then they would go through the cycle again. All that time, God ruled over Israel, eventually bringing them to Samuel, who was both judge and prophet. And we all know it was Samuel who anointed Saul as the first king over Israel, which leads us to the selection of a king in God's sovereignty. Verse 21 and 22. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. The Jews were keeping up pretty well with Paul's history here. The lesson on God's providence, they understood. But now he points out how Israel had a wrong king and a right king, and how God was sovereign over both. First in their selection of a wrong king. Verse 21 says, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. If you know the story, you know Saul was the wrong king for Israel. Understand, though, he was not put there because that's what God wanted. God put Saul there, or put Saul there as king because that's what the people demanded. 
Commentator John Phillips described it this way. He said, there was nothing wrong in the Israelites' desire for a king. What was wrong was motive. They wanted to be like the other nations round about. What was wrong was moment. God's time had not come yet. What was wrong was the man. God was not impressed, as the people were, with Saul's size. God saw the littleness of Saul's soul, and Saul turned out to be a disaster. But God was also sovereign over the selection of the right king. And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. So after God removed Saul as king, he raised up David to be their king. God chose David based on his heart, not on his outward appearance, which was what was the basis for choosing Saul. Remember, he was, he was head and shoulders taller, and he was a mighty warrior, and all of those things. It was his outward appearance that impressed the people. They didn't look at his heart, but God judges the heart. Now, we know David was not a perfect man, don't we? He sinned a number of times and in a number of ways. But David always made his way to the place of confession and repentance. And we see that in the Psalms as we read those each week. Psalm 28, 32, and 51 are prime examples. David makes his way back into confession and repentance when he has sinned. And in spite of his human failures, David really did want to do God's will. And God was sovereign over David through his triumphs and through his defeats. And it was through David's line that God sovereignly provided the Messiah. And God was sovereign over all the events that preceded that incredible event. So it's still early, and I'm already at my so what? Paul masterfully took his audience from one stage of Israel's history to another. And probably some wondered where Paul was leading. What would be the, what would be the high point of his message, his comments? Well, they didn't have to wait long to find out. He continued to discuss, and now he comes to his main point. God's sovereignty in providing the Savior for his people, his people being the nation of Israel and the Gentiles. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, that's David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. God provided a Savior, first according to the promise. Note in verse 23 that Paul thought it was important to note that Jesus was David's offspring. And of course, all Jewish scholars knew from Isaiah 11.1 1 and following that the Messiah would come from the line of Jesse, David's father. And Paul's point is that God sent Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. He sent Joshua to deliver them from the wilderness. He sent them the judges to deliver them from their enemies. And the right king to deliver them from the wrong king. And now he has sent Jesus to deliver them from their sin and destruction. 
Paul's argument is that Jesus, as the promised descendant of David, was no less a part of God's sovereign blessing than any of his prior provisions for the nation of Israel. In fact, he was the culmination of the thread of redemption, that scarlet thread that runs through Israel's history. Secondly, in verses 24 and 25, though, God also provided the Savior that was announced by a preacher. Verses 24 and 25. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Jesus wasn't one of those messiahs who just showed up on the scene out of nowhere and proclaimed himself to be the messiah. He was a savior that was announced by a preacher sent by God. John the Baptist preceded Jesus and he proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Paul identifies John the Baptist as a fulfillment of another prophecy. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 of one who would come before the Messiah, preparing the way for him, as one crying out in the wilderness. John one twenty three. John, John was different. As some would call him eccentric. He lived in the desert. He ate locusts and honey, dressed in camel hair clothes. And his message was repentance. Repentance as a way to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. He preached repentance from sin so that Jesus could come behind him and preach forgiveness of sin. It is true, and always has been true, that unless a person is brought face to face with their sin, they have no basis for repentance. How can you repent from something that you've never acknowledged even exists. All of Paul's history lesson here has pointed to his exhortation that we now see in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Wow. (laughs) Paul began in Egypt... He ends in Antioch of Pisidia. Descendants of the Hebrews that were led out of Egypt have been told that God is in charge of their nation's history to bring them to a place of hearing this message, this message of salvation, the very word that Paul has spoken to him that day. Can you imagine the reaction of the people that were there? (laughs) A stranger who had excellent rabbinical credentials, came to them from Jerusalem, had just walked into their midst and recited their entire history, and was leading up to the message that he had just delivered. Imagine the reactions. Well, actually, we'll get to see their reaction, uh, the reaction of the whole city next week. But more importantly, I want to ask you, what would you have thought if you had been in that synagogue that day? 
Would you believe that God himself had superintended your life to lead you to that spot that day to hear that message, the message of salvation? I don't know if there's anybody in here today who's never received that message. Anybody that maybe has never actually received Jesus Christ as their Savior that God has provided for you, for all of us. I want to encourage us today. If you haven't, confess your sin. Oh, not to me, not to your neighbor. Confess them to the Lord. He's one that he needs to hear that you agree with him, that you've sinned. And let him know you don't want to do that anymore. You want to turn from that and turn toward him. Receive forgiveness for those sins from the Savior, from the Messiah, that he provided for that very purpose, was to provide for our salvation that he did just over 2,000 years ago. He provided Jesus Christ to provide for our forgiveness of sin and our eternal home with him. If you haven't received that, I pray that you will, even today. Would you pray with me? Lord, that is...